One of the privileges of coming together as a church is to come before God together as a church. So would you join me right now where you're at as I lead us in prayer. God, we're about to hear from your word. I pray right now that you would prepare our hearts for that, especially because our hearts have been all over the map these past couple of months. Uh, We find ourselves as a people in the midst of circumstances that we did not, could not have anticipated, and yet here we are, whether it's coronavirus and this pandemic or isolation, whether it's the racial tensions our country is feeling right now. God, so many things that may happen before this video even gets aired or that may happen as soon as it's done. God, we don't know these things. We come before the one who does. The only one who is not surprised by anything that has happened is happening or will happen. And God, we seek to find great solace and comfort in that. I pray, God, for everybody right now who is listening to this, even for those who aren't listening to this, our, our friends, our family members, our neighbors, people, to anchor their hope in you. Help us to anchor our hope in you, the unsurprised one. Father God, I pray that your, your sovereign control over everything that takes we may be facing right now on our Father God these these waves that sort of hit the side of the boat so to speak can can knock us over but you can be that strong ballast that holds us up I pray that that would be the experience of every one of us as we bring the reality of what we're facing and what we're dealing with to you and and pour it out honestly before you in prayer I pray that we would find experientially that you are a solid rock that can be trusted that as we taste we would see that the Lord indeed is good So, Father, as you are the ballast for us, I also want to pray then that you would help us to be a strong voice of welcome and encouragement and instruments and tools of grace to all those around us. Because, God, we realize that that everybody around us is facing some form of unknown and unexpected, and it's it's long and it's weary, and we have lots of, of thoughts and feelings about it. And not everybody necessarily knows you personally and and can take that directly to you in prayer. So I want to pray especially for those people in our lives, perhaps our neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, other people in our, our sphere of influence who do not have a personal relationship with you. And I pray, Father God, that when they interact with us, whether that's just seeing what we post on social media or whether it's a personal interaction over the phone or in any other way, I pray that their experience would be an experience of grace. Father, that as we said earlier in this service, you would give us a heart to see all people as made in the image of God first and foremost and be able to connect with and empathize with the experience that other people are going through, whether we're having a similar experience or not, whether we share the same opinions and views on certain issues or not. I pray that you would help us to be able to connect heart to heart with fellow image bearers. I pray that you would make me, make us a people who are willing to be patient with the process, the process that you lead us all through to eventually come to find Jesus as true and beautiful. Give us the grace and the patience, I pray, to listen long, to connect heart to heart with people, and to love people the way you have so unconditionally loved us, so that God, even in the midst of this a crazy period of of isolation that we're slowly starting to come out of with everything else that is going on in our world. God, I pray that we would not look back on this time and just say, yay, we survived it. 
God, would we say that, that your church has grown. People found faith in Christ for the first time. People were loved. People took a step closer to you because of how they interacted with your church, your people. We know and we believe that you are doing your work in and through your church. And so we pray, God, that you would do your work in and through this church, through us. Show us whom we can love, to whom we can listen, and to whom we can show grace this week. And we pray that you'd use that to change hearts and minds all over this city and to redeem lives for all eternity. God, this we ask for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. God's word holds out a lot of hope for us. And I want to read the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning together from start to finish, uninterrupted, and then we're going to get into God's word together. Our text this morning is from the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 2, starting in verse 4 and going down to 15. The Bible says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the ruler's and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word for us. And Lord, I pray now that you'd open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Teach us and change us, we pray, for our good and your glory. Amen. Have a healthy lifestyle. There's certainly a lot of places that information, but ultimately we're the ones who are responsible for things like diet and exercise to prolong our health and our life. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you rely on expert advice like a diet plan or an exercise regimen that you get from somebody or that you look up somewhere and you follow it. Perhaps you even hire an expert 
Maybe you hire a health coach or a personal trainer at the gym to sort of custom tailor a plan for your health. But ultimately, like, you're the one who follows through on that program by your own effort and your own determination to achieve a desired result. Most of the time, that's how heart health works. But of course, there are times when our ability isn't quite enough to get it done. I mean, if your heart is so diseased or your health is somehow affected or or your heart damaged to the point where, say, like a bypass is needed or a stent has to be inserted, then uh, clearly we've gotten out of the realm of stuff that we control on our own. That's not the kind of thing you go handle in the garage on a weekend with a couple tools you got laying around the house, right? That would be a very bad idea. Uh, Clearly, at that point, uh, we're dependent on a surgeon and, and all of the OR nurses and other people who will be involved in performing a procedure. Of course, even at that point, we still have a responsibility. It's up to us uh, which surgeon we're going to go to and whether we go to them. And, and even once we schedule a surgery, you're going to have a pre-op checklist and things you need to do. But man, at the end of the day, whether or not my heart is going to come through this stronger or not is really sort of out of my hands. I'm placing myself in the hands of that surgeon. And my health at that point is significantly dependent, not on my work, but on somebody else's work. And that image comes to mind when I read a book like Colossians that we're walking through right now, because the question becomes, that may be true physically for our hearts, but what about spiritually for our hearts? What about our relationship with God? Which of those two categories I just mentioned a moment ago does the Bible say is more like our condition with God? Is it if you work hard on it, you're good enough that you can maintain your health and you're good? Or is it, no, you're past that point and you need some greater help? Well, if you're familiar with the message of the Bible, you know the answer to that question. We're in the second category, according to the Bible. The condition of our souls, of our hearts, is so dire and severe that while we have a part to play, it's beyond our ability to simply fix it ourselves. And that becomes an important thing to recognize when we get to a book like Colossians because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was helping this church work through. They had people in their church who were teaching them certain things about how they needed to fix their lives with Jesus, how they needed to pursue Jesus and grow in their relationship with Jesus. And essentially, their, their message amounted to Jesus is really important, but by himself, it's not enough. It's good that you came to faith in Jesus. Now we're going to show you what you need to do in order to stay in that faith and grow in that faith. These false teachers uh, were saying that in addition to Jesus, the Colossian Christians needed to follow their program for personal spiritual self improvement. Listen to us. We've got the wisdom. We've got the insight. We can lay out the plan that you need to follow. And so the Colossian Christians would quickly kind of line up and take notes. Oh, tell me more. I don't understand this. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to say, no, that is not what you need. These false teachers were selling themselves as spiritual health coaches, if we could push that analogy a little bit. They were peddling a program of personal and spiritual development that emphasized at least three things. First of all, it emphasized rigorous spiritual disciplines. Probably based on the rules and regulations in the Old Testament, they had long lists of religious festivals they needed to follow and do's and don'ts that they needed to put into practice. If you're really going to grow in your faith, you've got to maintain a rigorous adherence to the checklist. Secondly, their program was based on uh, wisdom, 
That is uh, something we talked about this past Sunday. A special insight that they claimed to have into how life works and how God works. Insight that not necessarily anybody else had. So they were the experts. You guys need to listen to us. Oh, I better hear what the expert has to say. And lastly, their program entailed connection to and even worship of angels, spirits, as, as mediating sort of spirit guides. Now, it's interesting that the book of Colossians never says exactly what the, the false teaching was. We sort of glean these components of it just based on comments that are made here. Reading the book of Colossians is like listening to one side of a telephone conversation where we don't hear what the false teachers are teaching exactly, but we do hear what the good, the true teacher is saying in response, and that is God speaking through the voice of the Apostle Paul. And in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter exactly what the false teaching was. What matters is the true teaching. And the point was very clear. The Colossian Christians had a choice. Would they get sucked into believing that they had to follow the false teacher's program where their, their own effort and determination to achieve a desired result would lead to something greater? Was that what it meant to follow Jesus? Or did Jesus have something else in mind for his followers? And we see that right away in our passage this morning from verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8 in Colossians. See to it, the Apostle Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, that is, human programs and ways of doing things, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. It's very clear the Apostle Paul says there is a program that is coming to you through people, but it's ultimately driven by Satan and his demons. It's ultimately fueled by spiritual beings. And this program is going to get you off track. Don't be fooled. Don't be duped. And so our sermon this morning has two simple points. The Apostle Paul is going to tell the Colossians, and therefore us, even as modern-day Christians, how to follow Jesus. The first point is simply, he says, don't be duped. Look hard at Jesus. He is what you need to continue to grow in your faith. And then the second point is he's going to show us how to look hard at Jesus, what to look at when we seek to look at Jesus. So let's start back in verse 4 where this text begins. And we see this first point that we are to look long and gaze hard at Christ and not be pulled off guard or, or off track by some of these other programs. Chapter 2, verse 4. The Apostle Paul had just said that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, he says, Jesus has everything you could possibly need. And then he says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul makes his, not only his point clear or what he's teaching, but the why he's teaching. Jesus has everything you need. Now, I, I want to tell you that so you won't get deluded by plausible arguments. I mean, he, he knows that what these false teachers were saying is plausible. In other words, like it's, it's believable. It had the ring of truth to it. It was, it was winsome. It was persuasive stuff. And I think we've all experienced that. I mean, infomercials work, right? That's why they still make them and air them. I mean, a, a charismatic um, communicator can sell most people on just about anything given enough time and preparation. You know, you hear enough um, rational explanations and testimonials of success, 
and, and how their product can help you avoid your worst fears and achieve your dreams. And if you listen to that long enough, almost nobody will be totally unmoved. It is a persuasive, uh, it has a persuasive impact on how we think. And that's what was going on in this Colossian church. And so Paul says, I don't want you to get deluded by that. In fact, in verse 6, we get really kind of the, the key, verses 6 and 7 are kind of the key statement for this whole section. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. What he's saying there is that there's one thing a Christian ultimately needs to live a successful Christian life, and that is the gospel of Christ. The same thing that we need to start our Christian life. That's the same thing that allows us and fuels the growth of our Christian life. As you have received Jesus, so walk in him. In other words, so live your Christian life the same way you started your Christian life. The gospel of Jesus is not just the good news of how unsaved people can become saved, how sinners can find life in Christ. It is certainly that, but it is more. It is also the basis of a new life and the means by which we live that new life. Which means we never outgrow the gospel as Christian people. The good news that, that brings us to God through forgiving our sins is the same good news that empowers us to follow God fully. But of course we lose sight of that frequently, don't we? I do. It's too easy to assume, even if we would never say it this way, to start approaching God once I've become a Christian in a way that says, I need to, to, to work for God. I need to achieve for God. We'll sometimes fall into patterns of thinking that say, like, you know, I need to work on this particular sin in my life. Uh, I need to achieve spiritual maturity through a rigorous program of personal spiritual disciplines. Well, of course, we do have a part to play in our Christian life. That much is clear. But ultimately, what the Bible is saying here is you don't need to work to make yourself more mature as a Christian. You need the gospel of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul proposes something much better than what these false teachers were giving them in verse 7. He says, uh, As you receive the Lord Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. If, if I'm going to look at Jesus, if I'm going to build my life on him, he says what that looks like is you need to, to have your life rooted and built up. He, he uses three rapid-fire word pictures. One is an agricultural one. Have your life rooted. Send the, the roots of your life deeply into the soil of the gospel. That's how you grow as a Christian. Secondly, there's a construction analogy. He says built up in Christ. Like the gospel is the foundation of your life, which is a whole building that is shaped and held up and supported by this one solid foundation you never get away from. That foundation is the gospel. And then lastly, he says, to be established in the faith that is firmly anchored in a Jesus-reliant mindset. He says that's what it means to walk in Christ, to live in Christ. And it's, it's interesting to note that all of those, those action words, all the verbs in that verse, verse 7, are passive. And basically what that means is it's not something you do, it's something that you have done to you. Which is interesting because it's, it's a command as you have received the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. This is something we're supposed to do, but it's a passive command. So it's not something we're supposed to do, it's something we're supposed to have done. 
right? It's like the difference between saying it's COVID and the barbershops have been closed, so go cut your hair, which for some of us is a good idea and for some of us probably isn't. <laughs> go cut your hair or go have your hair cut <laughs> by somebody else. That's a passive command and that's more of what's going on here. Rather than saying, go root your life in Jesus and go build your life on Jesus, what he's saying is, go have your life rooted in Jesus. Go have your life built on the foundation of Jesus. And the point of that is simply this. We don't work to make ourselves spiritually mature people. This is work that God does in us, much like presenting ourselves to the surgeon so he can fix what we don't have the ability to fix ourselves. And that's what makes sense out of the ending of verse 7. He says, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. I've got to admit, when I first read that, that struck me as a little bit random. Why does this word like gratitude or thanksgiving drop into the passage here? It seemed to come out of nowhere. Why didn't he say, abounding in hold? Abounding in honesty. <laughs> abounding in good works. He could have said a Christian thing. And the thankfulness... Is is a, is a reaction, a heart reaction that comes from appreciating what we're thankful for. And in this case, we're thankful for the work that God is doing in us to root us more deeply in Him. Of course, thankfulness can be fairly superficial, can't it? When he talks about abounding in thankfulness, he's not talking about a casual thankfulness. You know, in, in my home, it's easy for my two kids and I to sit around the table and, and enjoy a meal that, that my wife, Amy, has prepared for us and say, as we often do, oh, mom, thanks for dinner. This was really good. And then we get up after dinner's over and we leave, which isn't bad, right? It's actually better than not acknowledging it at all. It's much better to be thanked than not thanks. So that's not necessarily bad. But we can also even say those words and mean them, but the fundamental attitude, you know, it's easy for us to just take it for granted because she does it every night and she does it really well and so we just come to expect it. And sometimes when we, we get used to something, it ceases to, to really impact us the way that it should. Every now and then I'll sit there at the dinner table and stare at my plate for a second with this beautiful meal that's been put in front of me, and I reflect on what my, um, shall I just say, my culinary life would look like <laughs> if I were a bachelor. Like, heaven forbid if my wife Amy just died and I was suddenly alone. Like, how would I be eating? And then I look down at what's on my plate and I say, this is much better. Now, let me pause here and just say, since this is recorded, I do want to say I'm not totally inept in the kitchen just before all the Facebook memes start. And I probably just asked for a bunch of Facebook memes, but I'm going to leave that up to you guys, okay? <laughs> I may not be totally inept in the kitchen. My basic cooking skills are pretty solid, but I got to tell you, I'm nowhere near as good a cook as my wife, nor am I nearly as creative and inventive with the kinds of foods and the variety of foods that she regularly puts in front of us. Healthy, tasty, varied meals. And sometimes I just look at that and I say, man, what I get every day from your work is such an upgrade to my life. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for this meal, but thank you for everything that you are. And as you can imagine, that kind of gratitude has a much bigger impact. So how do you get there? How do you not just, hey, thanks mom, and take off? How do you say, wow, you're really giving me something deep? Well, it's pretty simple. 
I have to think about it, right? I've got to stop and stare at my plate for a minute and, and think about what my life would be like without this and spend time focusing on or gazing at what I'm grateful for and then the gratitude just wells up. That's what the Bible is saying here that, that we're supposed to do with Jesus. Live a life where God is rooting us deeply in the soil of Jesus and when we've done that, when we look at Jesus, the gratitude will flow. The Apostle Paul who's writing in this, said elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, that a Christian life is one in which we look at, that is, focus on, or fix our eyes on, we deliberately choose to stare long and hard at, not what is seen, but what is unseen. And in the context of that passage, uh, what he's saying is what is seen is like the hardships of this life. Life can be tough. Life can be difficult. Life can be exhausting at times. But he's saying as Christians, we don't focus on that. Of course, we see it. We experience it. We're aware of it. But we choose not to focus on it. Instead, we focus on what is unseen. And in that passage, he means our glorious future with Christ in heaven. And so you see there's a choice. Can I look at what is chaotic in my life right now? Can I look at what is exhausting me right now? And if I look at it, if I focus on it and stare at it, I will get consumed with anxiety, consumed with frustration. I will eventually despair and potentially even begin to doubt because my life will be full of that. But while I, I recognize and acknowledge the truth of all of that and don't turn a blind eye to it, nonetheless, I have the ability to choose to focus on the reality of who Christ is and what he has given me. And the Bible tells us as Christians, that's where you put your focus. And when that happens, you start being grateful, even in the midst of all the muck and the chaos of what is happening in this world, I experience gratitude for who Christ is in me. We need to gaze at Jesus long and deeply. So brothers and sisters in Christ, who are you looking at? Right now, in the midst of everything going on in your life right now, what and who are you looking at? How could a deep gaze at Jesus potentially change your perspective? That's what we're being encouraged toward in this passage. And if that's something you say, yeah, that's what I need more of. How do I do it? Well, I've got good news. That's what the rest of our passage is. The first point is that we need to gaze at Jesus. That's how you avoid being deluded and you root your life deeply in the gospel. Now, the second point that we're going to look at this morning is, so if I'm choosing to gaze at Jesus, what do I gaze at? How do I do that? And in the rest of the passage, the Apostle Paul gives us three things. They're not the only three, but they're three very core and important things that he exhorts the Colossian Christians to focus on as we seek to gaze at Jesus. All of them are still relevant for today. First of all, we gaze at the sufficiency of Christ. Secondly, he tells us to gaze at the new life we have in Christ. And lastly, he tells us to gaze at the victory of Christ over sin and Satan. Briefly, let's look at each of these. First of all, if I want to fix my eyes on Jesus, then what do I fix my eyes on? The first thing is the sufficiency of Jesus, verses 9 and 10. Colossians chapter 2. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of God, of deity, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. These verses are highlighting the sufficiency of Christ. He has everything you need. In verse 9, he says, All the fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily. When 
Jesus Christ, God, became man, he didn't cease to become God. The Jesus that lived and talked and, and, and died and rose again from the dead was never less than God. Meaning, in their context, if you want more of God, you don't need to look beyond Jesus. You don't need to go to somebody else's insights and program to add to what Jesus is. Everything God is, Christ has. And what's more, he then fills us as Christians with that. He fills us with all that he has to share of God's deity. Now, that does not mean that he makes us God. Of course not. Only God is God. We don't become gods ourselves. And yet the Bible teaches that there is an intense personal connection between a Christian and his Savior, Jesus Christ, in which, as the Apostle Paul puts it elsewhere, we become partakers of the divine nature. Strong language. That's what the Bible says when we come to faith in Christ. That is, God's Spirit moves into us and God's power transforms us from the inside out. Everything you need is the point you have but you only have it in Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. And it, he ends there by saying he has all authority over everything. There's no higher power. There's no additional power. There's no supplemental power that Jesus needs to have added to him. He has all authority over all rulers, over all angels and demons, over all smart people and programs. He rules it all. So, the program of strict religious discipline and deep knowledge that the false teachers were, were hawking and selling, it just it wasn't needed. That was his point. That's why he called it empty earlier. There's just nothing there for you. You don't need that stuff. In Christ, you have all you need because adding anything to Jesus is ultimately taking away from Jesus. As you have received him, so walk in him. And the point of this is very clear. Jesus has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Everything. But we forget that, don't we? We forget that. We often feel that when there's a need, the first person we need to run to is another person who can help us. Or maybe we just feel that we need to expect more of ourselves and push ourselves harder and work harder or maybe we just think, I can't handle this anymore. I know God is out there and I've prayed and that's great, but now I need to go self-medicate with whatever my self-medication of choice is. There's a lot of places we're tempted to go other than a full conviction that Christ has all we need. But the same gospel that saved you is the same source for all you need to experience life, freedom from sin, and the strength to endure until Christ takes us home. Lots of other things in life can be beneficial. Nothing else in life is necessary. What does it mean to look at Jesus? Look at the all-sufficiency of Christ. Let your roots drop deeply into that soil. And the Bible says you will begin to experience radical change. Looking at Jesus, first of all, means looking at his sufficiency. Second of all, it means looking at the new identity that we have in Christ. Verses 11 through 13. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him 
through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Christ. All of this is pointing to the new life, the new identity we have in and only in Christ. That's what all the language of circumcision in verse 11 means. The Apostle Paul there is using language that was pretty well known to those who understood the background of the Old Testament. In that Old Testament Jewish context, circumcising the males was the the mark of you being in. You're one of God's people. You're an Israelite. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says that 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 Old Testament circumcision was just an outward sign. It didn't actually do anything to outward sign. But now, when you come to Christ, there is a a real circumcision, or as he puts it in Romans chapter 2, a circumcision of the heart. (laughs) Not not the flesh and the body, but deep of the soul. And transplants it with a brand new God-worshipping heart. And so all this language of the circumcision of Christ and putting off the old body of death, what he's basically saying there is, when I become a Christian, Jesus gives me an entire new life in place of my old one. How does this happen? How does he do that? That's what verses 12 and 13 are about. He does this through our union with Christ. You see, a Christian becomes united with Jesus in his death and his burial. That's what verse 12 is talking about. Meaning, Jesus didn't just die for me and pay for my sins. He absolutely did that, but that's not all he did. As if that's something that's just outside of me, and it it affects me, but it doesn't really change me. No, it's more than that. Not only the Bible says when Jesus died for your sins, if you're a repentant Christian, does that pay the penalty for your sins? But actually it says you participate in the death of Christ. Which is why Paul was able to say in the book of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You see, when Jesus' body was literally killed on the cross... The Bible tells us that the old me was killed on the cross with him and it's now died. It has been buried with him. That's what baptism symbolizes. When a person goes under the water, it's like dying and being buried. And then when we come back up out of the water, it's like a resurrection. Just as Jesus went into a literal grave and literally died and then was literally resurrected, so we too, in a very real sense, our old nature dies and we are given new life because we are united with him not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. We're given a new heart. We're given a new life, just as Jesus received new life. And here's the great news. If you're a Christian, this new life is yours already in Christ. It's, it's created. It's a life that's created and bestowed by God. It's not something that we work hard to manufacture ourselves or to attain or to achieve. And we keep using this phrase, in Christ, and if you're a Christian. Friends, what I want to say is if you're looking at this message and watching this stream right now, and you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, this is the message for you. This is the Bible's gospel good news for you. 
that new eternal life is there. It's yours for the taking. It's already been made and accomplished by Christ, but you can only have it in Christ. And what that means very simply is we need to come to Jesus in prayer. And it usually helps to do this in the presence of somebody else as well. And simply admit, Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't fix it myself. And I am trusting that your death paid the penalty for my sins. Would you have mercy on me? Would you forgive me? And would you accept me as one of your children? And when we do that, the Bible says, his death will not only count toward your sin, but also that his burial will bury your old sinful self and his resurrection will give you new life, free from the need to love and obey sin and free to love and obey and enjoy God forever. If you have any questions about what that means or how that works, would you please give us a call here at the church office, 503-629-8300. One of our pastors would love to have a conversation with you about how to begin an eternal life relationship with Jesus. Now, if you've already made that commitment, note what the passage is saying. As you have received Christ, so continue to walk in him. So Christian, this means that the gospel is the basis of how we live our new life even now. We might paraphrase verse 7, as you were raised to new life by Jesus, so now live out that new life. You see, gazing at Jesus and focusing on Jesus means seeing how his death and resurrection for me and in my place is the basis of an entirely new life that he's given me. Look long at that sacrificial gift of your Savior. The Lent season and Easter season help us do that annually, but we need to be doing it all the time. Look at how undeserving you are. Think about who you are or would be had Christ not had mercy on you. Look at the sinful tendencies that still are in your heart and imagine where they would run if the love of Christ did not constrain us and lead us to life. Look long and hard at Jesus and what he has done and the roots of your soul will go deep in the gospel and the gratitude will well up. What does it mean to to look at Jesus? It means to look at his sufficiency. It means to look at the new life he's given us. And lastly, it means to look at his victory over sin and Satan. Pick this up in our last couple of verses, the end of verse 13. It says, He made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. The whole idea behind verse 14 is that every one of us, every human being ever made, owes God, our creator, total obedience. And every human being who is born fails to give him that total obedience. That's true of all of us. This is sin. And and using courtroom language now, the Apostle Paul um, sort of grabs this idea that, that there would be charges that would be written down against the accused as the official record. And using that language, the Bible depicts our sin before God as a list of crimes for which we have already been convicted in a fair and just trial. But rather than carrying out the sentence, Jesus sets it aside. He sets aside the list of guilty things that I've done before him. Notice, it doesn't say he erases it 
or throws it away, pretending like it never happened. No, my sin is still real. God is honest because that's justice. Justice never looks the other way when wrong is done. But rather than, than erasing it, what he does is he defangs it. He declaws it. He takes the bite out of it. He removes it of its power. He cancels the sentence. He sets it aside. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He had victory over my sin. But there's one more thing in this passage. He not only had victory over my sin, he had victory over Satan and the whole world system that urges us to live for ourselves and not God. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a reference to uh, spiritual beings. And he put them to open or public shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Boy, one more word picture in this passage that's so packed with them. He here is using a military analogy. Uh, it's very common back in the first century when one nation would conquer another that sometimes they would, they would take the king or the ruler of the conquered nation and they would beat him and strip him and put him in rags and then they would lock him in iron, clap him in irons and put him in chains and then they would go back to their hometown and they would have a victory parade. Here comes the military. They just conquered the enemy and everybody's shouting and waving and they would parade that king in front of the victorious king. Here's their king deposed and mocked and humiliated and everybody can laugh at him and jeer at him. They put him to open shame to say, we beat you and your strong king is nothing to us. And now the Bible grabs that image and says, that's what God did to Satan at the cross. All of his power designed to pull people away from God and, and foist false teachings on us that will lead us away from God and, and enhance our sinful tendencies. All of that was ultimately defeated when Christ died on the cross. And so he has now put Satan and his ruler and his, his angels to his demons to open shame. He's parading their failure as Christ conquered death on the cross. Christ not only had victory over my sin, he had victory over an incredibly powerful supernatural being whom I could never hope to tussle with. But he tussled with him and he won because that's who Christ is. And so when I want to look long at Jesus, what am I looking at? Look at his victory. Look at his victory over your sin, a power you could not defeat on your own. Look at his victory over Satan, a power we definitely could not defeat on our own. He is victorious over all of them. And so friends, when we want to look long at Jesus. What do we look at? This passage helps us see that to gaze at Jesus is, is where our, how we drive the roots of our soul deep, how we let God drive the roots of our soul deep in the soil of the gospel. And to do that, we can look long at the sufficiency of Christ. We can look long and hard at the new life we have in Christ. We can look long and hard at the victory of Christ. As you spend time pondering these things, gratitude for who Christ is in you will well up in your heart. And according to this passage, you're well on the way to becoming the Christian God has called you to be. So as we conclude, let me ask, what, what sin are you feeling ashamed of? Perhaps. Or what wise person or insightful program are you trusting in? What hope are you placing in angels or spirit guides to carry you through in life? What hope are you putting in men to come together and just figure it out and fix the problems that have plagued us as a society for so long? Jesus proved every other source of life to be empty. 
gazing at morning. Who are you looking at? Cause we come out of coronavirus isolation to see are we the same people or are we gonna be different people? Who are we looking at? So we look at the, the things that weigh on us and plague us and cause us fear and anxiety about the future. Who are we looking at? Beloved, let us look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And there may God drive the roots of our souls deep into the gospel, and may we find there the life to be the people he's called us to be. Let's continue in worship now and sing back to this God the praise that he is so due as we gaze in song at who Jesus is, what he has done. And let's let our souls drink deep at that well together now.